From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Congressional Correspondent Katherine Gibson and Marketplace Correspondent Nancy Marshall-Genzer. Welcome, Nancy and Katherine. Thank you. Hello. Well, here are the issues. Republicans were expecting a red wave to occur as voters went to the polls for midterm elections. However, Democrats did better than they had expected in some of the races. In Congress, the balance of power is at stake, and in some key races, election officials across the country have cautioned it could take days before results of some contest are definitive. In Georgia, the closely watched Senate election between incumbent Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker is headed to a runoff election that will take place on December 6th. There were some key wins that have been determined. Democrat John Fetterman was victorious over Republican challenger Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania's Senate race. In some gubernatorial races, Florida, once the nation's premier swing state, Governor Ron DeSantis and Senator Marco Rubio, both Republicans, won their re-election bids. Georgia's Republican Governor Brian Kemp won over Stacey Abrams. Sarah Huckabee Sanders won the gubernatorial race in Arkansas to become the state's first female governor. The state of Maryland elected its first black governor, Democrat Wes Moore. And 25-year-old Maxwell Frost of Florida was elected as the first Generation Z member of Congress. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said his country is willing to consider genuine negotiations with Russia. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield met with Zelensky and expressed Washington's steadfast support for the country, which is suffering from rolling power blackouts, water shortages, and Russian shelling. Those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, the midterm elections were not the red wave of victory that the Republicans had predicted, despite Americans' concern over some big issues such as inflation and high gas prices. Catherine, you covered the elections there in Georgia, and you're still in Georgia now, but what was the mood leading up to the elections and even after? Well, you know, I was here in Georgia because it's one of the most closely watched Senate races in the entire nation. And the voters here were telling me that they knew that they were in a position to really decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. That's a position that they've all been in quite a bit recently. You know, I was here in January of 2021 when there was a Senate runoff election that decided who had majority in the U.S. Senate. And we're back in that position now. And what's really striking to me as I speak to the voters here is that they really are aware of balancing power between the two parties. They're very aware of the divisiveness of politics. And that really came out in the race between Senator Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. There were a lot of allegations against Walker about spousal abuse, paying for abortions for old girlfriends. So, of course, that brought up the larger issue of abortion rights that's been discussed in this country. And there's also a lot of talk here about whether or not Senator Warnock was beholden to President Biden. We know that a lot of candidates around the country had this push-pull as to whether they even wanted to be associated with Joe Biden. There were some big picture pieces of legislation that the White House and the narrowly Democratic-controlled Congress were able to pass, 
But in the end, Biden doesn't have great approval numbers, and the economy is really rough for a lot of people. So it's surprising to see how all of this played out. We thought that the economy would play a larger role, and the picture that's emerging now and that some people's voters here in Georgia were telling me is that extremism from the Republican Party, the worries about democracy, about election integrity, about abortion rights, those apparently played a larger role in some races than we initially thought they would. So a lot to unpack here, a lot of interesting things that voters have told me. It's been a fascinating election. And of course, we have two other undecided Senate races. At this point, they're undecided in Arizona and also in Colorado. In Colorado, the Democrat, the incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Mastos, facing off against Republican Adam Laxalt. And Nevada's two biggest counties, Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is, and Washoe County, which is where Reno, Nevada is, uh, there are still tens of thousands of ballots there that need to be counted. Some of them were dropped off at drop boxes, others were mailed, and as long as they're postmarked by election day, they are counted. So it's unclear at this point when all those votes will be counted. And then, of course, in Arizona, we have Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, who faced off against Republican Blake Masters. We have tens of thousands of votes in Arizona that also still need to be counted. They might be finished by the end of this week, but at this point, it's not clear. The Democrat there, Mark Kelly, is in the lead in Colorado. The Republican is in the lead. But that could change. In looking at the balance of power at stake in Congress. Nancy, from an economic standpoint, what will it be like for Americans with a divided Congress? Yeah, at this point, it looks like Republicans will take the House, but they'll have a very narrow margin. One thing that Congress will need to get done is in the next four months at least, they're going to have to raise or suspend the debt limit, the debt ceiling. Unlike other countries, when our debt hits a certain limit, Congress has to vote to either suspend that limit or actually raise it. And in the past, the parties have used this as a way to try to force legislation through attaching riders to the debt ceiling authorization. There's a lot of speculation that Republicans could attach a rider to the latest raising or suspending of the debt ceiling that would roll back some of the $80 billion in new IRS funding that was approved as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Republicans also want to try to extend the tax breaks that were enacted in 2017. Right now, they're scheduled to expire in 2025. Republicans want to extend them. So they have a lot on their agenda. But if they have a very narrow majority, they'll have to be very united to get legislation through. And right now, their caucus is kind of all over the place. There are a lot of Trump-backed far-right conservatives, and then there are more middle-of-the-road Republicans. So we'll have to see how cohesive they can be to get something done. That's an important point that Nancy brings up. And I think I've been looking at this issue over the past day as we get more numbers in and see just how much of a majority Republicans are going to have in the House. At the moment, it looks like they could have as few as a single digit majority. And I think people need to remember that U.S. Congress is composed of people who can get COVID, who can get sick. Republicans are most likely going to end the Democrats' COVID-era rules about being able to vote remotely, vote by proxy. And so they are going to need every single body 
in the House chamber to pass some of this stuff. And already we're hearing from some members of the House Freedom Caucus, a conservative caucus, who are saying, look, Joe Manchin over in the U.S. Senate has basically put himself in the power position by being the swing vote. We can do that over here in the U.S. House. And one person, one vote can have a lot more power than in the past. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. I've seen it happen before when Paul Ryan was speaker and the Freedom Caucus was able to tank a lot of his initiatives. You may see that again. You may even see with some special runoff elections that are coming up, the majority in the House flip again. You could have it flip back to the Democrats. So I think we need to look ahead to these next two years and say it is going to be very, very chaotic, very unpredictable, and we're going to see a lot of gridlock. We are not going to be seeing a lot of big picture legislation getting done. And that's a good point. If the Democrats were to take back the House and once again be in charge of the House, Senate and White House, you know, they would probably try to pass more parts of President Biden's Build Back Better Act. That could include things like extending the child tax credit. And some economists say if we do have a recession next year, that kind of government stimulus spending would be essential. And with divided government, we probably wouldn't see anything like that. Abortion rights was such a key issue in this election. I talked to so many female voters down here in Georgia in a swing state where they are likely deciding control of the Senate who are saying, I got out and voted because I saw what happened with the Dobbs decision over the summer. They have literally said to me, that swayed my vote. That is why I came out and voted Democrat this year. And you have to remember that if Republicans were going to be in charge of the U.S. Senate, they were probably going to pass a federal level ban on abortions, which means that not even the states would be able to decide it would be a federal nationwide ban on abortions. Of course, President Biden said that he would veto anything like that. But you can't underestimate how important this was to the voters who are coming out in this election. They were looking at the balance of power in the Senate and saying, look, we don't want this federal ban to be happening. Of course, Republicans also ran on the issue of inflation, saying, you know, they would be able to handle inflation better than the Democrats. It's interesting, the Penn Wharton budget model, which is produced by University of Pennsylvania's business school, they estimated that to cut the inflation rate by just one percentage point next year, you would have to slash discretionary spending, that's spending that's in the budget that Congress votes on. You'd have to cut that by almost half or $750 billion a year just to get inflation down by one percentage point. So if Republicans want to say they're going to slash inflation by cutting spending, they would have to cut an awful lot of spending to make an impact. Yes, those were some really big issues that brought people out. And also analysts say that President Biden's speech on democracy also motivated people to get out and vote. I was asking people here in Georgia about that. And when I was at a Walker rally, that's, of course, a Republican Senate candidate. So you have primarily Republican voters that I would be talking to there. There was a lot of dislike of President Biden. People were saying some pretty intense things to me about the way he's run the country over the past two years. But over on the other side, when I was going to Democratic rallies, they weren't using that phrase democracy so much. People were telling me that they believe that their vote will count. They have faith in the system. What they were talking about was the divisiveness in politics. There was a real appetite 
hear among Democratic and independent voters I spoke with that they're really tired of that Trump brand of politics where there's name calling, there's attacking. There's a sense that the country is facing a very difficult economic situation. And that kind of back and forth, that kind of divisiveness in politics is not helping anybody anymore. And they want to see politicians really get down to the brass tacks and be able to get some stuff done in Washington, D.C. And it's interesting, that message did actually get through to voters in Virginia anyway. Abigail Spanberger was a Democrat up for re-election in a closely divided Virginia congressional district. And I saw ads for her with Republican members of Congress endorsing her and saying, look, I'm a Republican. I'm doing something unusual. I'm saying something nice about a Democrat. I'm endorsing Abigail Spanberger. So that message did work for some candidates. She did win. Although we did see Elaine Luria, who is a member of the January 6th committee, lose her reelection bid. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag in terms of how all of that played out. I think it's important to remember that voters don't often vote on the national level themes and narratives that some of us reporters like to talk about. Some people I was talking to in Georgia, a lot of people actually, were talking about insulin prices and very local level politics issues that were important to them. They were voting on that single issue. So it's sometimes hard to say whether that's really the reason somebody went down or if it is indeed because she served on the January 6th committee. It's true. And, you know, you were mentioning earlier that some voters told you how much they dislike Biden. And it's interesting to me that the president, whoever is in office, is blamed for a bad economy or given credit for a good economy. The president is not in charge of the economy, especially now. It's the Federal Reserve is the government entity that's trying to bring down inflation, raising interest rates and causing home mortgage rates to go through the roof. And yet people still either blame the president or give the president blame for what's happening in the economy. I just wanted to go back to some of these big races. For instance, the Senate race in Pennsylvania, it was a big victory for Democrat John Fetterman over Dr. Oz. What does this win say about voters in Pennsylvania? Well, I think what was interesting about Fetterman's strategy in something that Democrats have not done a whole lot of before is that he went into some of these red Republican districts in Pennsylvania that had gone for Donald Trump and said, look, we don't need to flip these districts and make them Democratic blue. All we need to do is convert a couple thousand people and get them to vote for me, and that will give us the margins we need to win statewide. That's a little bit of a new approach from Democrats, and it's interesting. He was saying, look, I'm the person who will fight for you. And if you look at the polling data from Pennsylvania, the candidate in that race, voters said who they thought would be willing to fight for them was Fetterman. And that seemed to be the deciding factor, despite some concerns about his health. You know, he suffered from a stroke earlier this year. He was still recovering, still has some auditory processing issues. And Dr. Oz went after him for that. I think the debate that they had in October was really important, too. And we know that Fetterman had some difficulties, some struggles in that debate. 
But what came out of that debate, the key headline was that Dr. Oz said that women should make decisions about an abortion with their local political leaders. That's a damning line in this election, considering how many female and independent voters came out to vote. And I think that was a factor in that race as well. You know, progressives are also pointing out that Fetterman was fairly progressive in his views. I mean, he came out in favor of approval of legalizing marijuana for recreational use. And they're saying, look, you know, you can be a progressive and still win. And they're pointing to Fetterman as proof of that. The biggest gain for Republicans was in Florida, with Governor Ron DeSantis and Senator Marco Rubio, both Republicans, winning their re-election bids. So what are the national implications for Florida returning to a red state? Yeah, it's really interesting. The Hispanic vote has been a topic of much discussion. And I was in Texas and talking to Hispanic voters there. Some of them feel like the Democrats have taken them for granted. It does not look like they went en masse for Republicans in Texas. But really, Ron DeSantis got quite a bit of the Hispanic vote in Florida, and I think that surprised a lot of Democrats. Well, another historic first was 25-year-old Maxwell Frost. He was elected as the first Generation Z member of Congress in Florida. So do you see this representation as a response to the divisive issues in America? Well, he uh, was very outspoken and a leader on trying to get gun control. He says that he was encouraged to run. He was somewhat reluctant to run. He's not wealthy. He worked as an Uber driver. And as you mentioned, he is very young. He says he got a call from President Biden and uh, Biden said that he had to wait a few days the first time he was elected to Congress because he was too young to be sworn in. (laughs) And Biden asked Frost if that was the case. And he said, no, I, I got you beat there. I was old enough to be sworn in. But yeah, I mean, this is a new generation, Generation Z, and we'll be seeing more of them in Congress. Yeah, and I think you made a great point, Nancy, that he ran on the gun control issue. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more candidates, younger candidates like him, who came of age, unfortunately, in the age of school shootings. And some have personal experience with it. Some have been very public national figures in terms of organizing gun control. And you're going to see a lot more of them going into public office. And one other issue to mention before we go to our break, Russian businessman Yevgeny Prigozhin admitted he had interfered in U.S. elections and would continue doing so in the future. What is reaction to this statement? Well, the State Department spokesman Ned Price called this a bold confession, a manifestation of what he called the impunity that, quote, crooks and cronies enjoy under President Putin. He said that the Kremlin must have approved of this at some level. So the White House is not acting surprised and is not happy about this. And with that, we will take a quick break. And when we return, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said his country is willing to consider genuine negotiations with Russia. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. 
Now back to our panel via Skype, Marketplace Correspondent Nancy Marshall-Genzer and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. Russia ordered forces to withdraw from the city of Kyrgyzstan, the only regional capital Moscow captured since launching its invasion in February. This while Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he is open to negotiations with Russia. So based on Russia's actions, does it appear Zelensky will be able to negotiate with Russia? Zelensky is saying he will only negotiate if Russia meets some conditions. So he wants the return of all of the occupied lands that Russia invaded and occupied in Ukraine. He wants compensation for damage caused by the war, and he wants the prosecution of war crimes. I don't know if any of those conditions will be met. Russia has said that it will not agree to any preconditions for talks. So they are at a bit of a stalemate at the moment. And the timing of this is very interesting. We're hearing from Ukrainian leaders that they are cautious about this withdrawal because they're concerned that some Russian troops may be dressing in civilian clothes, blending into the population, and using this pause as a time to regroup. It's also coming ahead of the winter when there's going to be an expected lull in the fighting season. Some analysts speculating that that pause may help Russia, help them regroup. President Biden was asked about this in a press conference earlier this week. He basically gave cautious words of optimism about this withdrawal and saying, you know, look, we need to be careful here. And we also know, as everything does, it comes back to the midterm elections here in the United States. The withdrawal was timed at a very interesting point in American domestic politics, because as we know, Republicans in some of the lead up to midterm election day had been saying that Ukraine was no longer going to be getting a blank check from the U.S. in terms of military and humanitarian aid. So there was some anticipation that they might not be getting the resources that they needed anymore if Republicans took on a large majority in the House and took control of the Senate. Of course, as we just discussed, they are not going to be taking that large majority. It's going to be much more difficult for them to pass anything or block anything in terms of aid. So the aid outlook for Ukraine looks much better now, and that could be playing into the Russian withdrawal as well. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Catherine, what is weighing on your mind? Well, as I speak to you all from a hotel room in Atlanta, Georgia, what is weighing on my mind is how much of a swing state the southern state of Georgia is. It's played a key role in several elections now, and I've had the lucky chance as a reporter for Voice of America to come down here on quite a regular basis and really see the demographics shift, to see the diversity of these Atlanta suburbs that I've been reporting in, the range of opinions, the real passion of the electorate, people I always speak to on either side, they are very read into the issues, they are very passionate about their beliefs, and they're really aware of the balance of power in the U.S. government and the role that they play in really deciding where that balance of power lies. So sometimes it's easy to get ground down by reporting and talking to voters and being frustrated by misinformation. But, you know, coming here to Georgia, it reminds me that people are really still engaged in American democracy. And Nancy? 
I have been thinking about money, specifically how much money was spent on these midterm elections. Almost $17 billion. Republican Mehmet Oz, who of course lost to John Fetterman in the Pennsylvania Senate race, he spent millions of dollars of his own money on his race. And we have this peculiar system where there can be millions and millions of dollars donated anonymously by very wealthy people. And both sides do this. It's called dark money and it's donated to super PACs. And the super PACs have to report how much money they take in, but not where they got this money. So there is just a tremendous amount of cash sloshing around in this country. And I think that it contributes a lot to the the negative feelings around politics, because a lot of the ads that are paid for with this money are extremely negative and very personal. Interesting. And we will end the show on those thoughts. My thanks to our panelists, Marketplace correspondent Nancy Marshall Genzer and VOA congressional correspondent Katherine Gibson. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. (laughs) 